We are going to continue our study of Advent this morning as we prepare for the celebration of Christ's birth. I read a story this week about a family in 2007 that purchased a little bowl at a garage sale, a little ceramic bowl for $3. Show you a photo of it. Okay, so they bought this little bowl at a garage sale, three bucks. And they brought it home, they put it in their living room on display on the mantelpiece for a number of years, five or six years it sat there in their house on display. And at some point, I don't know what made them curious, but they became curious about where it came from. What was the origin of this bowl? And so they took it uh, to have it appraised at Sotheby's and uh, found out that this $3 garage sale bowl was actually a thousand years old. Uh, It came from China, from the Northern Song Dynasty in China. There was only one other bowl like it in the world. And it had been on display in London at the British Museum in London for 60 years. Uh, They had it appraised. It appraised at around $250,000. Then they had it put up for auction and it sold for $2.2 million. This bowl that they bought for three bucks at a garage sale. Uh, I love stories like that. I hope something like that happens to me one day. Every time I read a story like this, I go into the garage and kind of kick around and see what we've got. It's kind of my retirement plan, actually. Uh, I love reading these types of things. They intrigue me. Uh, And one of the reasons is I think, okay, how does that happen? Uh, How did a thousand-year-old Chinese bowl end up at a garage sale, surrounded by the Tupperware and the old kids' clothes? How did such a remarkable treasure find its way into such a mundane environment? And so it it astounds me, and sometimes I even wonder uh, if the family that sold it for $3 ever read about this story later and thought, what a terrible opportunity we missed, not knowing that such a remarkable treasure was hidden in our presence, in a very mundane setting. Now, the reason that I bring that up, of course, is because when we read the Christmas story, when we read about Jesus, we see something very similar, that Jesus, the greatest treasure, the greatest gift that God ever gave mankind, was hidden in very mundane circumstances. There's nothing special about the circumstances in which Jesus is born. And so we see this principle at work in God's character, in God's work in the world, that God uses ordinary people in ordinary places to accomplish extraordinary things. I was talking with Ross this week about the songs he was going to do, and and he mentioned this song, Bethlehem, he was going to sing. And it, it really helped me process what we're talking about when we talk about Christmas, because there's nothing special about Bethlehem. There's nothing special about Mary and Joseph. The reason we know about them is because of their connection to Jesus. That's the only reason we talk about Mary and Joseph. It's the only reason we talk about Bethlehem is because God chose at this time and place in the first century to do something extraordinary, really through very ordinary people in a very ordinary place, so that we see Jesus being dropped into extremely mundane surroundings. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that ought to be a source of encouragement and joy for us, right? Because we're pretty much all ordinary people. And I don't mean that as an insult to you. 
I include myself among that. We're all ordinary people. We live in a culture that says you have to be extraordinary or special or exceptional in order to be anything significant. In fact, as I was walking down the hall here in the school this morning, I saw a sign that said, dare to be remarkable. What I want to encourage us this morning is that the scripture would actually say we can dare to be ordinary. Uh, We can dare to be ordinary people in a pretty ordinary place to do just whatever it is that God may call us to do. Because like he did with Bethlehem and like he did with Mary and Joseph, God may use ordinary people like us to be a part of his extraordinary plan. So that uh, we simply say, you know what, I'm going to be faithful to whatever it is that God has for me. I'm just going to say yes to the next step that God has for me in my life. And in earthly terms, we say, you know what, I live in College Station. Right? We kind of tell people about College Station in relation to where it is uh, near some of the other big cities or near the university. Right? You say, I live in a smallish place. I'm a, an ordinary person who does smallish things with most of my life. Can that be significant in the grand scheme of things in the kingdom of God? And I think as we look at the story of Jesus' birth, the answer has to be yes. Because again, no, nobody surrounding Jesus is anything special. They're just extremely ordinary people. But God says by the power of the Spirit of God and through the power of Jesus Christ, they're going to have an opportunity to participate in a remarkable story. And the question for us is, will we simply be faithful to what God calls us to do moment by moment and day by day? I want to look at these uh, circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth then this morning so that we can get a sense of how ordinary they, they really were and yet how God used these ordinary people in Bethlehem to accomplish a great purpose. So what we're going to see, first thing is this, Jesus is born to ordinary parents. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read a number of verses from Luke 1 this morning, starting in verse 26. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. So Mary and Joseph are both very ordinary people. As as we begin Luke chapter 1, as we begin this section, uh, notice Luke says, okay, she's in a village called Nazareth. She's in this little town called Nazareth. Nazareth was likewise nothing special. And all of a sudden, here's Mary, and the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Now, uh, to give you an idea of who Gabriel is, 
Uh, You see Gabriel in the Old Testament. Gabriel appeared to the prophet Daniel to, to explain to Daniel God's prophecies about the end times, right? So Daniel has a vision. Gabriel's the one that shows up to explain to this prophet what God is going to do in history. Part of that explanation included the coming of the Messiah. Uh, When Gabriel appears in the New Testament, right before this passage, he appears to Zechariah, right? Elizabeth's husband, and he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, the reason I bring this up is Gabriel's a really important angel, And Mary is not a really important person. So Gabriel shows up and he says, greetings, favored one. And it says, Mary is very confused by this greeting. And I think the reason is because, like a lot of us, Mary sees Gabriel and Gabriel kind of waves, hey, greetings, favored one. And Mary goes, is there someone behind me? Is there someone else in the room? I'm just an ordinary girl engaged to an ordinary person. She's confused. And then Gabriel goes on and he says, you are going to bear a child and this child's going to be called the Most High, the Son of God. He's going to save his people. He's going to rule on the throne of David. This child's going to be the Messiah. And I love Mary's response. Mary doesn't say, wow, the Messiah is going to be born into our family. What is Mary's very ordinary, earthy response to this astounding announcement from this important angel? She goes, how's that going to work? Right? Because I'm a virgin. And Mary is very concerned about what this is going to mean for her life, the scandal it might create. She has a very earthy concern on her mind. I've often wondered, did it occur to Mary that maybe the child would be Joseph's child after they were married? It doesn't even seem to occur to Mary. I don't know if Mary just thought, eh, I can't be Joseph's baby, not somebody like this, right? How's this going to happen? And the angel says that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And so Mary is this unbelievably ordinary person, right? A lot has been made of Mary throughout church history, but the reality is we know of Mary because of her connection to Jesus, right? Same thing with Joseph. Joseph is a carpenter, probably a lower middle-class tradesperson in Israel, right? Both Mary and Joseph are descended from the line of King David, which might make you think, you know what, they're important. But the reality is this is a thousand years after David's reign. There would have been hundreds or maybe thousands of descendants of David walking around. In fact, we find that in a moment when we look at Bethlehem, how crowded Bethlehem became when all of the descendants of David suddenly converged on Bethlehem. There were tons of them. Being a descendant of David was not that big a deal, especially because David had a lot of wives and a lot of kids. And so there were a lot of descendants. These are ordinary people in an ordinary place. And both of them find themselves in a very extraordinary situation. And what I love is that both of them simply say, I will obey what God has called us to do. Right? So that you see in Luke chapter 1, after Mary sort of absorbs the shock of Gabriel's announcement, she said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Joseph has a very similar response in Matthew chapter 1. When he found out that his fiancée was pregnant and Joseph makes the natural assumption she's pregnant with somebody else's child. And of course, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Take Mary. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph obeys. 
And what I love about Mary and Joseph is not only their ordinariness, they, they really could be any one of us in this room, but that when faced with a call from God that they knew was going to be hard for their lives, that they simply said, you know what? We'll obey. And what, what you find with Mary and Joseph both, as well as their other children, is that the life of being the family of Jesus was not always an easy one. It wasn't always an easy path because they really didn't understand him. So the first time you see Jesus, of course, in his childhood, when he's 12 years old at the temple, he stays behind and he's teaching the Jewish leaders about the Bible. And what are Mary and Joseph concerned about? Where are you? Right? It's a very mundane concern. We cannot find him. And they scold him. And Jesus says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And as an ordinary parent, most of us would think, you know what? I'll show you your father's house. Okay? It's an ordinary moment. Jesus' brothers and sisters and mom, they struggle to understand what he's doing. And as you read through the Gospels, you get this sense that they never quite got him. But they chose in this moment to be faithful to what God was asking them to do, an extraordinary task for ordinary people. So we ask, can God use ordinary people in a place like College Station, Texas, to be representatives of his kingdom? Can God use ordinary people in an ordinary place who are faithful to his call to have an eternal impact, I think the story of Jesus' birth would say to us, absolutely, he can. We know of Mary and Joseph because of their connection to Jesus. Jesus is in a very ordinary family, born to ordinary parents, born in a very ordinary town, very ordinary town. Look at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So Mary and Joseph go back to Bethlehem, which is their ancestral home. So Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, said everybody has to go back to their hometown, and they have to register so that they can pay taxes. Augustus wanted to know how many people were in the empire so he could tax them enough. So Joseph and Mary pack up, and Mary by this point is apparently eight or nine months pregnant, and they get on a donkey and they go to Bethlehem to register. Bethlehem is the city of David. But when you look at a map and you look at the history of Bethlehem, what's interesting, we talk a lot about Bethlehem this time of year. Bethlehem is not that big a deal. Let me show you on a map where Bethlehem is, and I know you can't read that from back there, but uh, right around here is Jerusalem. And Bethlehem's right here. Bethlehem is five or six miles away from Jerusalem. It's pretty close to Jerusalem, but it's a whole lot smaller and a whole lot less significant. Bethlehem is the type of place that you define by what it is near to. 
right? Uh, my wife grew up in Bedford, Texas. So uh, whenever people ask her where she's from, she will begin by saying, do you know where Fort Worth is? And they go, oh yeah. And she goes, I grew up in Bedford. It's near Fort Worth, right? The, the full name of the city ought to be Bedford. It's near Fort Worth, right? It is right there. And you drive through the mid-cities. You drive through Bedford on your way to Fort Worth or on your way the other direction to Dallas. You rarely would actually stop in this town. So it's one of those places like Bethlehem. It's defined by what it is near to. It's also defined by one person who came from there, and that is King David. All of us have driven through those little towns in the middle of nowhere, and they'll have a big billboard that says, proud home of listed some celebrity, right? Many years ago, I drove through Henrietta, Oklahoma. Uh, Anybody know who came from Henrietta, Oklahoma? Yeah, okay. Troy Aikman, the legendary quarterback of the Cowboys. So you drive into town and proud home of Troy Aikman. Uh, Henrietta, Oklahoma is in the middle of nowhere, It's about an hour south of Tulsa and about an hour east of Oklahoma City. Another one of those places you define by its relation to the bigger cities. I drove into Henrietta, Oklahoma, and I went to McDonald's. Don't judge me. Went to McDonald's to eat. And as I walked in, I saw all of this Troy Aikman memorabilia at McDonald's. Right? Old high school jerseys, signed footballs, pictures of Troy Aikman with the proprietor. That was their identity. Troy Aikman came from here. This is the home of Troy Aikman. Notice that when you get to Luke chapter 2, it says, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, the city of David. And city is a grand term here for a very small place. At the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem probably had no more than a few hundred people. We talk about the great tragedy where Herod ordered the slaughter of all of the babies under two in an attempt to kill Jesus. Uh, It doesn't make the history books apart from the Bible. And the reason is because uh, Herod probably only killed seven or eight kids, which is still terrible, but it's not a mass slaughter of thousands of innocent children. The reason is Bethlehem is so small, but it's known for being the birthplace of of David. Uh, When you go back into the Old Testament, there's a few times you see mention of Bethlehem. One of them is in the book of Ruth. Uh, In the book of Ruth is a story, of course, about this Moabite woman who married Boaz, this Jewish man who lives in Bethlehem. And Boaz is a big deal in Bethlehem, right? But that's not saying a whole lot. It's like saying he was a big deal in Snook or something like that. It is not a huge deal, but everybody knows Boaz and Ruth marries Boaz. And the climax of the book of Ruth, right when you get to the end of the book, the big reveal is Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandparents of David, right? That's ultimately where the book of Ruth ends, to let us know these people and this city are important because David is born there. David comes from there. Even David himself comes from a very ordinary family. He's the seventh son of Jesse, who isn't that important necessarily of a person in the grand scheme of Israel. He's not a king. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's just a normal guy. And here's this seventh son out in the fields as a shepherd. And God says, I'm going to lavish my grace upon Bethlehem and upon this young man who will be faithful to my call. And I love when the prophet Samuel showed up in Bethlehem to anoint King David. 
said the elders came out to meet Samuel, this prophet, and they were trembling. They said, do you come in peace? And the reason is this, I think, because nobody came to Bethlehem who was important unless something was wrong. And here comes Samuel to anoint the new king of Israel. And from then on, Bethlehem is known as the city of David. But of course, from the time of the New Testament on, Bethlehem is known as the birthplace of Jesus. So the other critical passage, the one that Kyle read earlier from the Old Testament, comes from Micah chapter 5. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. If Bethlehem was a person, I would imagine he would read this and go, that's all great about the ruler and all, but why do you, why do you got to call me too little? Why you got to say I'm insignificant? Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem, let me just remind you, you're nothing special, but from you is going to come this one who's going to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. The eternal son of God would be born in this tiny little town. So Mary and Joseph, because of a fluke of history, find themselves traveling to Bethlehem. I love because Bethlehem is so small, they get there and there's just not even room for all the people who converge on Bethlehem. It's like College Station on game weekend. Too many people, too little space. Right? And, and they probably aren't staying in, in a stable like we would think of a stable. They're probably in uh, somebody's house. And the idea is that there would have been uh, private homes that had two or three stories. The very lower floor would have been where the animals are kept. The middle floor would have been where the family lived. And then there would have been a loft or an upper floor that they would reserve for guests. And what happens is Mary and Joseph roll into town and the upper floor of the house for the person that they happen to know, the relative that they know, it's already taken up. Right? You got like cousin Jedediah and all his 12 kids are sleeping up there. And so Joseph and Mary roll into town and there is no place for them to stay. So they probably are staying either in the family quarters or they're staying down on the lowest floor with the animals. And the manger would have been in between those two levels. And when Jesus is born, because there's nowhere else to put him, you're not going to put this baby on the floor with all the other guests. You're not going to put him on the floor with the donkeys and the sheep. So where do you put him? You put him in the manger where the animals would eat. That's the type of birth that Jesus, the Son of God, experienced. Unnoticed by the world, in a very small place, to very ordinary people. Bethlehem is only significant because God chose Bethlehem to initiate something great. Bethlehem is significant because God in his grace loves to take what is small and unnoticed by the world and ordinary and do extraordinary things. Even in their lifetime, Mary and Joseph were really not necessarily that well-known. We know of them today because their names are written down as those who raised Jesus. From their perspective, they continued their lives in obscurity, doing what was 
seemingly mundane work. Cleaning the baby, feeding the baby, training the baby. It says Jesus listened to his parents and grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. These parents trusted that God had a purpose for the most mundane tasks of their life as ordinary people in an ordinary place. And they just said, we will follow where God leads. And I love that when we read the story of Jesus' birth. To think that that God could take people like us and by his grace fill people like us with the Spirit of God. I think about that. we're, We're nothing special or important on our own except for the fact that God chose to live in us because of what Jesus did for us. So that all of a sudden, for those who know Jesus Christ, we are, like Ross saying earlier, we are like Bethlehem. We get the privilege of being temples of the Holy God. We get the privilege of being a part of his plan for his kingdom. And what he calls us to do then is simply to say, Lord, I will go where you lead. I will say yes to what you ask me to do because I trust that even though I don't see the value in sharing the gospel with a neighbor, I don't see what's so big about doing my job in a way that reflects the character of God. I really don't see what's so important about raising my kids to know Jesus. I don't see what's so important and exciting about the day-by-day-by-day work that God has called me to do. God says, all that I have called you to do is eternally significant because I'm the one that called you to do it. So that extraordinary things can happen through ordinary people even if they go unnoticed by the world. So Jesus is born to these ordinary parents in a very ordinary town. And I want to make one other point about Jesus' birth. Ordinary parents in an ordinary town, but also he's born in very dark times. Very dark times. At the time that Jesus was born, most of us know that the nation of Israel was under oppression They were ruled by the Roman Empire. You don't have to look far to see that, right? Jesus' birth is an indication of that. The reason Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem in the first place is because Augustus Caesar said, everybody's got to pack up and go to your hometown so we can tax you enough. And by enough, the Roman government actually taxed the people of Judea somewhere between 30 and 40% of their already meager income. These people are poor. They're experiencing oppression. There is conflict among the Jewish leadership between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the other leadership and scribes of the Jewish people. There's all of this conflict. The people of God are divided. The nation is divided. They're under oppression by a foreign government. They're poor and they're in need of salvation. And in the midst of that darkness, in a very small town to very ordinary parents, God says, I'm going to save you now. And so he sends Jesus right into the midst of this mess. Because what the people ultimately needed salvation from was the sin that separated them 
from God. Because the darkness they were experiencing externally was terrible, certainly. But the worst darkness was the darkness of their hearts that had caused them to rebel against God, that had led to God's judgment on their nation and in their lives for hundreds of years. So God says, I'm going to move now in this small place through this ordinary family to shine a light of salvation. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. As I read Luke 1 and 2, Matthew 1 this week, I I couldn't help but be struck by the reality that we still live in dark times. I mean, I don't think that's any secret to any of us in this room that we live in dark times. We live in a troubled country. We live in a troubled world. We see the effects of sin and death everywhere that we turn. My wife and I went to a concert earlier this week where uh, the singer showed a video about the problem of sex trafficking around the world. And it was an organization they were promoting that was dedicated to helping end that problem worldwide. And you watch a video like that and you think, what in the world can somebody like me do about something so big and terrible? What in the world kind of impact can I have when I'm just... One guy or one girl in a small place, in an ordinary family that, in fact, has its own problems. What can I do? And what I love about how God works in Jesus, as we read the story of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, as he says, I'm going to move in to demonstrate that my greatest work at times happens in unnoticed corners of the world through ordinary people. And I will shine the brightest light in the darkest of times by the agency of men and women who will simply say, God, I will do whatever you ask of me, even though it's small. Because the message of Jesus is ultimately that the significance of our lives does not come from how many people notice it, but the significance of our lives comes from our connection to Jesus himself and his work in the world. Because the parents are ordinary, the town is ordinary, the baby is anything but ordinary. And so further on in Isaiah chapter 9, that's where we have this description of the coming one, the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That the baby is extraordinary because he would one day grow to be the man who would die on a cross and take on all of that darkness and sin and rise again so we can have life and the hope of an eternal kingdom where there's no more darkness and no more sin, and no more oppression. 
We sing it every year when we sing, O Holy Night, that we look forward to a day when all oppression will cease. All darkness will end. And in the meanwhile, if we know Jesus Christ, we trust the fact that even in our ordinariness, the powerful Spirit of God is in us and among us. So then in dark times, God says, I want to use even ordinary people to have an impact for my kingdom. All right, so as, as we close, let me offer a couple of thoughts then. For what do we do with this? What do we do with this concept of God's work through ordinary people? Let me say a couple of things. First one is this. Simply say yes to God's plans. Right, be, be like Mary and say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you wish. Say yes to God's plans. You say, you know, God's plans for my life don't only seem ordinary. At times they seem difficult because I have to struggle with a tough family or a tough job situation or neighbors who are frustrating and annoying. You say, my life does not seem as glamorous or powerful as Mary and Joseph's. Right? But that's the whole point of the text. I promise you, after many miles bumping along on a donkey, after having a baby in a house and laying that baby in a feed trough, Mary did not feel super glamorous. And yet they said, we'll go where God leads. We'll say yes to God's plans. I to say, God, whatever it is, I want to take the attitude of the heart that says, I will, I will obey by the power of the Spirit of God. And then use your ordinary life to serve our extraordinary Savior in small ways. You know, maybe it is that you have a few extra dollars this Christmas and you say, you know, I can give some money toward the Christmas co-op so that the light of Jesus Christ can shine into a family that does not have the ability to help their kids celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So I've got a few extra dollars. I'm ordinary. I'm not wealthy, but I've got a little bit that I can give. Maybe it is that you say, you know what? I've got a little bit of time. I can talk to and listen to my neighbor who is struggling with a difficult marriage or difficult children or financial problems. And I can listen and I can shine the light of Jesus Christ in that way. Right? Maybe it is that you have some kind of influence or sphere of influence at work or on social media or whatever it is. And you say, you know what, in little ways I can communicate the hope and the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to know it. Even if my circle of influence is five people, I'm going to use my ordinary life to say yes to God's plans and see what it is that he wants to do. So as we Look at the birth of Jesus Christ. I hope we're struck by the reality that that's what those who surrounded Jesus in those early days chose to do. And we know their names because they were connected to Jesus and they obeyed what God had for their lives. We're going to celebrate communion as we close and as everybody gets ready for and comes up for communion. Here's what I want to say. When we celebrate communion, communion is an opportunity for us to reflect upon who Jesus became, that he became a man who died for 
our sin. And so we reflect upon the gospel itself. If you're here this morning and you don't know God through Jesus Christ, the message of communion and really the message of Christmas is that everybody can be connected to Jesus and have the opportunity to have the life that he promises to those who are connected to him. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus to forgive your sins and provide you eternal life, even before you feel the need to participate in communion this morning, I'd ask that you, uh, you search your heart and, and say, is this the moment that God would say, I'm calling you to trust in Jesus Christ? Right, for those who know Jesus this morning, we want to be grateful for all that he did on our behalf and grateful that because of his death and resurrection, that paves the way for the cleansing of our sins and the indwelling of the Spirit of God so that we like Mary and Joseph and like Bethlehem, can be a dwelling place of God's Spirit to follow wherever he would lead. So let's spend a few moments preparing our hearts as we prepare to celebrate communion. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we praise you this morning because of Jesus. It's him that we celebrate. It's him that we worship because we know that it's his death and resurrection that gives us life. It's your grace that's the reason we're here this morning that has allowed us to escape judgment for our sin. We praise you for the reminder this morning from your word that you use people like us in places like this to be a part of your story. And so I pray we would simply submit to your call. Whatever it is you have for us today and this week, I pray we'd say yes to you and obey where you follow by the power of your spirit. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.